you're listening to the Tongue Tie Experts Podcast, a weekly program providing information and support for those families impacted by tongue and lip tie and the professionals caring for them. I'm Lisa Palladino, a midwife and a lactation consultant with over 30 years of experience. If you are a parent looking for answers or a professional who is curious to learn more than what you learned in school on this topic, welcome. This podcast is for you. A gentle disclaimer, please do not consider anything discussed on this podcast by myself or any guest of the podcast to be medical advice. The information is provided for educational purposes only and does not take the place of your own medical or lactation provider. Thank you. Welcome everyone to this episode of Tongue Tie Experts. This is a Meet the Team episode. I'm Lisa Palladino and I am honored today to have Dr. Scott Siegel as my special guest. Welcome, Scott. Thank you, Lisa. It is such a pleasure to have you here. Um, I know you very well because we've been collaborating for quite a few years now, but if you wouldn't mind to take a moment and tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. All right. Well, uh, first off, thanks again for, for having me on here. It's, uh, it's always an honor and, and humbling. Um, and uh, it's a great service that you're doing. Um, so, yeah, my name's Scott Siegel. I am, um, by profession, I'm an oral and maxillofacial surgeon. And what that means, in my instance, I'm, I'm both a dentist and a physician, um, what we call a DDS and an MD. And I'd say the, the primary thrust of my practice that has kind of evolved over the years is, is taking care of uh, tethered oral tissues um, from infants up through adults. But a big thrust of my practice happens to deal with, with infants with, um, with feeding difficulties. Um, and that could be, you know, breastfeeding primarily, or it could be bottle feeding as well. Um, yeah. but and I know, just interrupt you because yeah. are there many people that are both a doctor and a dentist? No, there's the, you know, <laughs> there's in, in my specialty, there's a growing number of oral and maxillofacial surgeons that have both, you know, degrees or both the training in both. Um, but it, it is kind of interesting and, and kind of nice for me because I get to have feet in both camps of the medical um, field and the dental field. And it's helped me, you know, in forging relationships with both physicians and the, the dental area as well. And I think, you know, just the, the my knowledge base has been pretty broad that way as well. Yeah. Do you mind if I ask how that happened? Yeah. I mean, my, my history, which is always kind of fun and cool to talk about these things. And when you're, you're talking about how we all evolved and got into these areas, but my, my father was a dentist. So I'm actually third generation um, dentist. His father was a dentist. See, I learned something new about you every day. I didn't know that. (laughs) And when I was actually in uh, junior year of high school, I spent a summer in his office and I uh, picked up a journal and it had uh, some articles about a, a story about a child who actually shot his face off with a shotgun, kind of gruesome, mm-hmm. but about these doctors who were both dentists and physicians who restored and reconstructed his face. And at that point, I was like, ah, that's what I wanted to do. And that kind of set me on the path. 
of thinking I just wanted to, you know, reconstruct faces and do all of these things. And that kind of led me, you know, to going to dental school, going to medical school, and then my, my residency training program, which was in maxillofacial surgery, um, encompassed general surgery training. And, uh, and it was actually in my general surgery training and in my medical school years that I got um, kind of roped into the tongue tie. <laughs> yeah. And so so it thing. happened because of where you were and who was with you, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was fortunate enough at the time when I was in med school and doing my surgery rotations, I actually did rotations in pediatric surgery. And there was a, a professor there at the time. Her name was Elizabeth or Betty Carillos. Mm-hmm. And um, for those of you who don't know, she happen, happens to be one of the pioneers in tongue tie, you know, procedures and actually came up with a classification system for infants, um, you know, dealing with tongue ties um, called the Carillos classification system. When I went into private practice after these years of, you know, working with her and I was a resident with her and I happened to go into private practice uh, across the street from her office. And the rest was pretty much history. But my history with the ties and the babies and all of that started at that point. And that was in the year 2000, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. I went into it seems like time. a long time ago, but yeah. when you're talking about a field of medicine, it's not a long time. It's a pretty short period yeah. of time. And at that time, she was doing a lot of work with lactation consultants and, you know, helping them, you know, get babies back on breast that were having difficulties. And we were working together, we would share patients and she was, you know, part of my department in the hospital. And she had come over, actually, she was a patient of ours. And she was starting to talk to me about, you know, she knew I was using lasers, and I was doing a lot of facial plastic surgery and cosmetic surgery with with Mm -hmm. carbon dioxide lasers at the time. And she started asking me if I would, you know, treat some of the babies with her with lasers. So you were already comfortable with using a laser. Yeah. And she realized that you you could move that application to what she was doing. Right? Correct. She wasn't using lasers. She time. wasn't using lasers, but it was being done around the same time by by Dr. Kotlow, uh-huh. you know, in Albany. So he was doing it at that time. He was she was turning me on to his work and we all started kind of collaborating together and learning from each other. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, she would show me how she was doing these releases with a scissor and she was basically kind of guiding me as a mentor with the laser mm-hmm. and it really kind of took off at that time she was also starting to conduct research with Kathy Jenner Catherine Watson Jenner mm-hmm. very well also everybody who knows anything about tongue tie knows Kathy Watson Jenner she's like our hero you know right. in the field so uh, we were, I was introduced to her at the time and kind of learning from all of these giants mm-hmm. in the field and not realizing, you know, there were giants in the field at the time, but just friends. And, right. And, you know, and not realizing you were becoming a giant in the field, no, I was, not to make I your head. No, but you really, you know, <laughs> because the kids today, you know, the parents today know of you the way we knew of them back then. So, you right. know, you built yourself up quite a bit. Yeah. And that just kind of happens over time. Almost, you know, I look at it, it's just, you know, confluence, coincidence, accidental things and, and then loving what you do. And it just changed Mm -hmm. my whole life. Mm -hmm. So it started 
to build at that time and getting involved, you know, with um, the lactation community and realizing the need. And when, you know, Dr. Carrillos was starting to get towards the end of her career, she was like, listen, I'm going to, I want to hand over my practice to you, basically kind of hand the torch over. Mm-hmm. And she's like, you have, you know, th- we felt that the surgeries trying to understand what we were doing was pretty straightforward, but there were a lot of nuances. Mm-hmm. And we were noticing that a lot of these babies were either being misdiagnosed, not diagnosed, and procedures being done incorrectly. And we still mm-hmm. battle with that daily. Absolutely. Um, you know, so it, she introduced me to people worldwide who were in the field. She introduced me to a lot of, you know, um, people in, in medicine and dentistry and was able to kind of um, help, you know, put me where I am today. I always, I always have right. to go back to her. Right. And, and actually Kathy as well, because, you yeah. know, the other lactation consultants that I met 20 years ago and whatever. Right. So do you think that the evolution of the, or the growth of this field happened simultaneously in different places and then you guys came together? Because that's how it feels to yeah. me. I, I think everybody was kind of doing these things in, in yeah. different parts in their own little areas. And not, I think the biggest thing was like, you know, we're all seeing the same things, but not communicating with each other and our experiences. Right. And at at that time, they really, they can't form the, what we call the IATP, which was the, you know, affiliation of tongue tie professionals. So they can actually, you know, converse and communicate the experience. Yeah. I often talk about, um, I wasn't in the early conferences, but I went to the one in Montreal and I walked in there and it was the first time I felt like I was like, wow, I found my people. Yeah. You know, it was it was so collaborative. It was the only conference I'd ever been at that wasn't just one type of provider. Because, right. you know, you go to dental conferences. I go to RN conferences or lactation conferences or midwife conferences, but they never overlap. Right. And this was all the people that I just mentioned, plus body workers and massage therapists and people that take care of mental health of of mothers and babies and just everybody coming together, doctors, dentists, osteopaths, coming together and respecting each other equally. Like it wasn't like in other places, it's like, well, oh, she's just a a midwife, you know, she's just a lactation consultant. In this field, it has never felt like that to me. And I think that's part of what drew me in. Yeah, a hundred percent. You know, I felt home, Mm -hmm. you know, because even when I, at that time I was in a group practice with um, like five other docs and I was kind of even ostracized in my own practice because they Mm -hmm. looked at me like, what are you doing? You know, it's like, you can't have these moms breastfeeding in the, you know, (laughs) in the dentist's office. (laughs) You know, it's like this thing, but you know, it was like, well, I really care about these kids and my my wife at the time was breastfeeding my you know my first daughter and uh-huh. you, know, you have all these connections and and personal stories that mm-hmm. come involved and if you don't have an ego or you can uh, actually listen to people and let them guide you it, it's it's how I've learned the most mm-hmm. of everything it's it's from all of my colleagues like yourself and all of the other you know, people in the, in the feeding community, speech mm-hmm. community, that in the functional therapy community, as well as the mental health. I mean, you learn, right. learn from each other and that's right. 
know, yeah. And it's what ha- it's one of the things that has inspired me. You know, I teach a course for professionals and in my course, it's not limited to lactation consultants. It's right. open to anyone and anyone who takes care of moms and babies in any capacity, because as we know, many babies or moms and babies never even get to a lactation consultant. They don't even know to go to a lactation consultant. There's not enough of us and there's not enough of us who are trained in proper assessment. So these babies are just falling through the cracks, you know, and uh, social media can, you know, it can kill you, but it could make you, it can either inspire you or make you really sad. You know, I, on my Instagram, I have a post that I put up every once in a while asking for stories of missed tongue tie, because I want to know what's going on. And it's just really pathetic when I hear, you know, these babies that are either getting missed or um, being told that it doesn't matter, or they have a tongue tie, but it's not affecting breastfeeding. But meantime, breastfeeding isn't going well, and nobody's giving them an answer anyway. So I really feel that every healthcare provider that has an encounter with either a pregnant or breastfeeding family needs to understand this, right? You know, not necessarily diagnose it, but at least know their role in being able to assess, is this a possibility and sending them to where they have to go? Yeah, I I couldn't agree any, any, you know, a hundred percent, thousand percent, because it's, you know, we talk about um, just either knowing when to to refer. You know, you don't have to make the diagnosis, but um, uh, what is it? Uh, Jim Murphy, the the pediatrician, IBCLC. You know, very famous tongue tie doc as well, who gave that. I think at that Montreal meeting talked about failure to diagnose. Right. How you know if you're not able to make a diagnosis, at least put a couple of things together and know when to refer it out. Exactly. Right. No, maybe yeah. some and not just say you're fine. The baby's gaining weight. You're okay. You know, right. just stick a bottle. I like to paraphrase what he said and said, if you don't know how to assess for tongue tie, please don't say there isn't one. Correct. Because, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. Jim Murphy is great. And, um, and you know, what was this? I, I didn't comment it, but I saw the post. I think it was by Bobby Gahari about, you know, gaslighting moms and stuff yes. like that. Yes, it, it's a big problem. And I had I don't know how many moms today who felt that way. Right. That the pediatrician or the people in the hospital were saying they're fine. Everything's mm-hmm. fine. And mom knows in her gut something's wrong. Yeah. With the latch or whatnot. So yeah. there's a we lot. Don't of- trust, we're, not, we're not trusting um, parents instincts. Right. We're, we're taking the instincts out of parenting, which is that's yeah, the scary biology. Thing. You know, it's, right. it's human evolution mm-hmm. and biology. Right. And, and I mean, it, to me, it's common sense that something has to be causing the problem. Right. Right. So if, if breastfeeding is not working, we have to get to the root of why it's not working instead of just saying, well, just give a bottle. Because as we know, sometimes just giving a bottle doesn't matter because a lot of babies with these oral restrictions can't even take a bottle. Correct. You know, so interesting. And I keep popping in with my grandson's story. Um, he did really well breastfeeding but he was causing his mom pain and a couple of other things were going on. And he was obviously tied. Um, he can't take a bottle because he can't suck on a finger. Mm-hmm. So he's got something going on with the oral motor thing in his mouth. Right. So if he wasn't breastfed, we'd be having a problem right now. You know, and if my daughter didn't have a copious milk supply, so there's all kinds of presentations to this. Right. 
that are complex that need um, proper assessment by people who understand how to assess and mothers not being dismissed because no. babies, yeah. And then, you know what, I, I don't want, I, I want to get into a little bit about what the actual procedure is and we'll talk about that, but I just want to touch on the idea of, we hear the term preferred provider, which I don't really love that term, Yeah, yeah. but it, it's so important for families to understand how to know that the person that they're trusting their baby to for the procedure knows what they're doing. And um, there, you can do this by doing a search on social media. You can do this by, I have a download that I'll include here about questions to ask a provider before you let them, even before you make an appointment with them. You know, And some of those things are making sure that they understand that they work with a team. You know, because if, if a provider doesn't have a team, you don't work in a vacuum. Yeah. We're always communicating back and forth and talk about the other people on your team. Yeah. Like, I mean, what other know, kind of providers? We're all little pieces of a puzzle here. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, what we, and I know you've given the lectures as, you know, the IBCLC is a team leader and whatnot. Yeah, so my, my, you know, what I term my therapists, oral functional therapists, whether it's lactation, feeding therapy or whatnot, I really do feel that they're the leader of our team because they really assess the function. And, you know, we're, we're treating symptoms and function, not just an appearance of something. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so the members of the team, you know, primarily is going to be a lactation consultant or, you know, some other oral functional therapist um, or potentially a body worker, you know, mm -hmm. and we talk about that as a broad category. Right. We find, you know, so many of these babies are compensating when they're feeding. So they may be using their whole body or they may have connections in the mouth you know, these ties mm -hmm. can be connected with, you know, with what we call fascia. To other right. Things. I was just going to say the tie is the fascia, right? So um, like in my grandson's instance, he has a subluxation in his on one side of his neck because of the position he was in. And he right. holds himself in that same position still at a month old. So we're right. doing a lot of, we're doing occupational therapy and chiropractic and infant massage and oral exercises all to get him to get back to, to midline. And we know that as he's getting back there, he's doing better. He's nursing better and his tongue is getting stronger. So um, tell us about what phrenotomy or phrenectomy is. It's called both things, right? right. So yeah, the, the difference in the terms sometimes gets confusing. You have, you have phrenotomy, phrenectomy, and frenuloplasty um, as, as categories of terms. Uh, when we talk about phrenotomy itself, a phrenotomy or when you talk about otomy, it's just basically making a little cut in something and it, and it opens it up. Mm -hmm. um, so in simple terms, if you're using a laser or, or a scissor to make a phrenotomy, say under the tongue, you're basically making a little, a nick in the fascia or the, the you know, what we call the mucosa or the skin underneath the tongue, and you're opening it up. Um, when you talk about a phrenectomy, you're remo removing that whole frenulum or that little you know, attachment, as we call it. A frenuloplasty is when we start to get a little bit more involved and maybe start to even do you know, a little more intricate dissections to make that you know, area longer or you know, wider or go deeper. So there's different terms. Right. For the most part, when we're dealing with the infants and the babies, we, we try to do these more simple procedures called the phrenotomy. Um, and sometimes we you know, can just do that. You can release 
these little areas you you make a little nick and i use a laser to do this and it's been my preferred you know instrument you can use scissors if you're proficient my mentor was a scissor provider i've used scissors in the past i just prefer laser because it works well for me at this point and the advantages for me is i get a lot less bleeding and mm -hmm. more control and i can see a little bit more of what i'm releasing yeah I, I agree i mean post-operatively when i see uh, the result of either a scissor or a laser re release in general, this, the laser release is more complete and it's less, less of an angry looking wound and there's, it heals nicely. And, and again, that depends on your provider and their experience. Right. right. You know? exactly. exactly. Um, but, you know, so that's kind of the broad categories and a phrenotomy tends to be the most simple of the procedures to do. And, and it works very nicely in the newborns and, mm -hmm. you know, babies that we treat. Mm -hmm. And there's some some on older kids sometimes or, or adults. Sometimes you do the frenoplasty yeah. where you're actually doing sutures and yeah, yeah. Sure things are in the right place. Yeah. Sometimes we do that on, you know, I've had babies where I've done it too. Sometimes mm -hmm. they come, I've had babies where they've been scarred down. I've had a couple where you've had to take to the operating room and put them under. And that's very, very rare. Mm -hmm. I've had to do that. But yeah, we, we kind of, you have to know the indications for each of those procedures. Now, when so, you say scarred down, that means they had a previous release yeah, that wasn't done properly. Right. Exactly. Okay. So in my practice, I tend to see a lot of complex cases that were treated by other providers or mm -hmm. had multiple revisions and, and other issues going on. So, right. um, you know, there's but, no yeah. one size fits all with any of this. Right. And I would, you know, term, you know, these little kiddos are snowflakes. Each one is different mm -hmm. and each one requires a different team approach and, and having that functional assessment. Absolutely. And um, we have had, um, I mean, we've had patients very recently who haven't gone to the right provider. And I hate to say it that way, but um, there are some doctors who aren't, aren't as educated in the techniques. And so you want to be really, really, really careful. Do your homework before you pick a provider. Don't pick a provider just based on cost or even location. I mean, I know a lot of people travel pretty far to see people like you, people like Dr. Kotlow. There are other providers in our area that are very good. Um, but, you know, I've when I'm asked by parents why I recommend who I recommend, and not just not just as a dentist, but for other, you know, other healthcare providers as well, I always say, like, why would we what I always want to send somebody to the person who is the expert in it, not someone that says, oh, yeah, I can do that. And you certainly don't want to talk somebody into it. Right. So I had a family recently whose baby, um, the doctor, I believe they took the baby to an ENT and the ENT said, I don't think there's a tongue tie, but if you want, I can release it. So I said, and they ran out of that office. Thank goodness they were smart enough to say, because if he doesn't know what it, what a tongue tie is. Right. I'm sure he's a good ENT in every other aspect, but if he doesn't know what tongue tie is, if that's not his expertise, if he hasn't had specialized training to recognize what he has to do under that little infant's tongue, then it that can be a disaster. And we have seen some disasters, unfortunately. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I had a question the other night and, and I was, it made me think a little bit because we're still shifting what we do and what our protocols are. 
So somebody asked me about post-op care and we have evolved our post-op care a lot in the last five years even. So um, about wound healing and it, can you tell us the latest, like, do you, what are the latest recommendations for what to so, do after? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's evolving. My, my aftercare just evolved even this week, you know, we're changing things up and it, and it's mostly See, that's why I ask you <laughs> the, the, feed, the feedback, you know, I, I changed my uh, protocols. We try to do it as much as science-based as we can. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is an art to it. And with any of this, but there's also a lot of feedback and I, I really depend on the feedback from you guys from, mm-hmm. you know, what are you seeing, you know, yeah. what are you yeah. seeing and reattachment rates or what you're dealing with. And so, you know, we've kind of evolved even this past week, you know, based on feedback, we're trying to do more simple stretches and just work on the quality of opening up the wound. Mm-hmm. versus the number of stretches mm-hmm. trying not to touch the wound bed massages mm-hmm. which is new because we used to right. we used to massage everything and, yeah you know maybe we're closing more scar tissue um yeah. by doing i mean that. you know better you do better right i mean right. We, we're doing the best we can i don't think we've caused harm to babies but as as we get more experience and we share results we evolve so somebody was asking about research and i said honestly I think that they said, is it research or anecdotal? And I don't, I don't think it's either. I don't think it's anecdotal. I think it's experiential. Yeah, exactly. You know, and um, one of the difficult things we have in this field is providing the research or the levels of research that many people are looking for. So when you say that, you know, there's no studies on this, there's no research on this. like, these are very difficult things to, to actually study and give, you know, when you talk to pediatricians or other docs or other people in the healthcare field, they're looking for these studies that are what we call, you know, randomized control, right. double blind with huge numbers of subjects. And it's not, you know, for some of it, it's not even ethical to do this with this population because you can't group them into control, the non-controlled you know, mm-hmm. you can't not treat a baby who right. needs treatment. Right? And then it's variables that come into play. And it's when you're talking about wound healing, you're talking about things, you know, there's so many different variables. A lot of it is experience-based at this point. Mm-hmm. And what has been becoming best practices and best results for mm-hmm. us globally. And it's not just, you know, me talking to you or about, it's all of us combined worldwide. And that's why we have international conferences. That's why we have you know, we have our professional groups and we're all talking, right. you know, what are we noticing? What are we seeing with these? Right. Exactly. And I agree. And I think it's important for our listeners to know that, that, um, you know, the best levels of evidence diff, not it, it's almost impossible to get randomized control studies on some things, but if you see, usually what we see happens before you can prove it in research. Right. Right. So that's the state that we're at right now. Um, I think the first do no harm is more important when we're thinking in this in this topic about not missing, not mistreating, not doing unnecessary procedures. Yeah. So I say all the time, just because there's a tongue tie, that doesn't mean the tongue tie is what's causing the breastfeeding problem. Right. Right. Like there could be all kinds of things causing breastfeeding problem from the simple thing of not holding a baby correctly. I mean, that's why a lactation consultant is very important. Um, I see parents that are doing everything right 
and, and they're still struggling. But then I see parents who have no clue, have never seen anybody breastfeed before, and they're scheduling their babies or they're treating their baby like a bottle fed baby when they're trying to breastfeed. They're not holding the baby close enough and just a couple of simple tweaks. And they're like, oh, oh yeah, that's it. And the baby opens their mouth better and everything and, and nipples start to heal and everything is good. Right. Um, yeah. So there's that. So do you feel like, like how, how, how am I going to say this? What do you think the next steps should be in this field? Like what, where do you see this going as far as, you know, that's what we a, need to know really, what we need to do, yeah, how mean, we need to train people. Exactly. I think, you know, education and, and training is are really key because, you know, even you can't have, you know, a blanket law saying that you need to screen these babies before they leave the hospital, because, you know, how you have to even think about who is screening them in the hospital. How do you, you know, mm. come about this? So it's, there's a lot of complex, you know, pieces of the puzzle here mm-hmm. and no one right answer. You know, there's, we look at, at Brazil sometimes as a model because of, they have it actually a mandated law that the babies cannot leave the hospital until they are screened. And they do have a, a you know, classification system that they use there to look at, structure and function mm-hmm. um, we don't have that in the united yeah. states at point. i've also heard that the brazil i've heard from people in brazil that that there's still people falling through the cracks yeah, it happens. or not getting treated well and when i say not getting treated well i mean like not getting the proper treatment for their Correct. case and that's that's it's like they don't get the proper treatment it's very confusing um one of the issues that we have at this point is the awareness has gone way up and it's actually become, you know, somewhat of a moneymaker for some practitioners as well. Mm-hmm. And there's people just, you know, taking a weekend course and thinking that they can just automatically start doing it and get great results. I mean, there's nothing wrong with starting to do these things, but you need to have a team and you need to, you know, maybe be mentored. You maybe need more training before just unleashing it and doing it because right. you start to see results sometimes, you know, plummet a little bit. And there's this, you know, back and forth between the medical community and what we do saying that, oh, you know, there's been an 800% increase in these procedures that we see nationwide. And they look at that and start to say, they're just doing it to make money. Right. Uh, And it gives us a lot of bad name. And then you do see some results that are not great. So when you're talking about best practices and where do you see this moving forward, you know, there's a, a few things I think to think about education and training are key mm-hmm. you know, and, and integrating it into dental school training or medical school, you know, mm-hmm. education, residency programs. So you have to start where they're, you know, coming out. Right. Um, and um, I would I, I have to include in my questions to you a discussion about reflux because right. of your aerophasia articles and what you know about that, because there are quite a few lactation professionals that when I speak to them, they've never heard that reflux and tongue tie are associated with each other. So maybe we should talk a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, it's a phenomenon that we, we see, and again, it's experience based and it's tough to prove scientifically, but we see it. Um, over the years of doing these releases, um, you know, whether it's a tongue tie or tongue and lip tie, a lot of these babies, their symptoms of reflux um, started settling down 
pretty quickly, you know, within the time frame, what we call contemporaneous within that time frame of the surgical procedure. Um, and, you know, so many of these babies are on antacid medications um, or, you know, blockers that, that can actually have serious side effects. Mm-hmm. And we found that, you know, you see it kind of worldwide as one of the knee-jerk responses or reflexes for GI docs or pediatricians. If a mom says my baby has reflux or seems to have reflux symptoms, it's just to automatically put them on the medication. Right. Without, without looking for the cause of it. Without looking, you know, there could be just, you know, there's different classifications of reflux, you know, gastroesophageal reflux, you know, or infantile reflux, which could happen when you don't have the, you know, mature sphincters or those little, you know, openings from the stomach up to the, you know, esophagus into the mouth, and they can just get, you know, contents kind of coming up there, and they grow out of that. But we found that a lot of these babies are swallowing so much air because of how they're feeding with ties in the mouth. When they don't have this organized sucking and swallowing or suck, swallow, breathe patterns, many of these babies become what we call disorganized and where they're chomping and gulping. Mm-hmm. And if they don't have a good seal, maybe with the lip tie or just because they have the tongue tie and then they're, they're disorganized in their feeding, we mm-hmm. find that a lot of babies swallow a lot of air. Yeah. The parents will actually tell you, I hear my baby swallowing the air. Right. And the but, air's got to go somewhere. Yeah. And it goes into the stomach. Right. So it goes into the stomach. My, you know, parents will say my stomach, my baby looks distended, you know? Um, and then a lot of these babies develop secondary reflux symptoms or quote unquote colic, mm-hmm. you know, just a general term. Yeah. You see, you know, it's, oh, yeah. it's just colic, just give right. them gas, you know, gripe water or whatever, or yeah. reflux. So, yeah. That air, if it doesn't come up as reflux, then it goes lower and then it's, it causes air bubbles in the lower intestines and that causes yeah pain and quote unquote colic. Um, yeah. So you, you did find an association or a relief of symptoms in the babies you followed for that. We followed about a thousand babies and, and conservatively speaking, it was about 50%. We think it's up to 80%, you know, colleagues of ours see maybe about an 80% decrease in reflux symptoms, Mm -hmm. usually within the first two weeks of doing these procedures. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I was able to present it actually at one of the American Academy of Pediatrics meetings. It was accepted, you know, as an abstract and published in a poster there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was met, you know, with definite skepticism and, you know, bars and stuff. But there were definitely some pediatricians in the group that were like, yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think about it. So at least to put it on a radar screen, yeah, not, not all reflux needs to be treated with medications. Maybe just think about it as part of your differential diagnosis that ties could be connected to that. Right. And getting back to, you know, how we were discussing before, how little is taught about this, just the fact that that organization let you present about this at their their meeting was a big deal, was a big, that that was a very big step, you know, and then to publish it. And then, you know, I termed it, um, uh, AIR, which is called aerophic induced reflux. So it's a kind of acronym. So that kind of caught on with a lot of people in our field. Actually, it caught on with many pediatricians and GI people in my area who realized, well, you know, because I've actually presented it at some pediatric grand rounds and whatnot. And, you know, you certainly get people who are going to be stuck in their ways and not open to thinking about the things that is, you know, because that's not what they were taught. Right. 
Well, uh, big pharma is very strong. So yeah, if yeah, they're yeah, learning yeah. from textbooks written by, funded by the pharmaceutical agencies, that's then the that's, they're learning. Yeah. They're learning about medication, and that's it. And yeah. there are so many side effects coming out. I mean, I don't want anybody to be scared. If a baby needs medication, they need medication. 100%. But there are so many babies on medication now, more than ever before. And there's, to me, that's a sign that something's up if we're, right. if we're just medicating babies. because. And, and that's one of the things when we were looking at risk versus benefit and the number of babies that we were actually able to wean off. We just don't talk about reduction of the symptoms, but we're getting them off the medications right. within that time frame. And right. when we looked at the risk versus the benefit, the risk of doing a phrenotomy procedure, releasing lip ties is very low compared to the risks. And those risks have actually been published in the journal Pediatrics. They mm-hmm. had a series looking at risks of these, you know, with, um, you know, increased fracture rates of, of bones. Right. More allergies. Yeah. And because of change. Yeah. And, and whatnot. Yeah. So what I see in my practice is a lot of parents will come to me saying, yes, my, my doctor told me to put him on the medication and I'll ask if it's helping. And they'll say, it's not even helping, but they're afraid to take them off because the doctor said, you know, you know, pediatricians are are very powerful to young and um, parents who feel like they don't know enough to make a decision and they trusting the experts and the experts are just saying medication. But if we can get them to start saying, or if, you know, if you're listening now, just ask why, like always ask why, you know, why, why do you think this is happening? Doctor, what right. else could we do to uncover the reason? And it might not be tongue tie. It could be anything. Yeah. And, and this can apply to anything. I always okay. like to ask why be curious and um, realize that, um, as a parent, you know what's best for your kids better than anybody. If yeah. you trust your instinct. Yeah. If, I if, believe that hundred percent. Yeah, that that's what I always, you know, tell even I when I talk to young docs or whoever, it's like you gotta listen to the mom. Their mm-hmm. gut's telling them something and their gut's right. You know, their right. instincts are, are there for a reason. Yeah. And if you go home as a mom or or a parent and say that doesn't sit seem right to me, then it, it probably is. Right. Right. And how many parents have brought their kid to the doctor or to the emergency room saying, I don't know what's wrong, but something's just not right. And it turns out that, yes, there is something wrong that needs attention, you know? So yeah, parental instincts, especially maternal instincts are so strong. So um, yes. So what's really um, good, cool to me lately is that Due to, you know, we can say that the internet is good or bad and what, what parents learn on Google and, and Dr. Google, as, as it's referred to, um, can be a little bit overwhelming and not and sometimes misleading. But yeah. I do feel that lately when a family comes to me and they have a baby that's having a breastfeeding issue, they've almost always already heard of tongue tie right. as a possibility. It right. used to be that I used to be like, well, I have to tell you and teach you and, you know, and I still do the teaching now, but it used to be like deer in the headlights. What are you saying? I feel that there's more information and there's more good information out now yeah. and parents are teaching other parents yeah. and professionals who weren't in the field have experiences with their own kids yes. and are coming into this field because of it. We've yeah. seen that multiple 
places. Right. I have so many people, so many of the women who took my course, I was asking this question. They started out as something else. Like maybe they were um, a, an SLP or a chiropractor or even a pediatrician. And now they had a baby and the baby had tongue tie. They went down the rabbit hole of learning about tongue tie, realized they didn't know about it. And now they're learning how to make this their profession and, and get exactly. into the field. Exactly. Yeah. You, you, so. You'd be some task with this. Like I need to educate myself and you want to educate others. It's like, right. I, right. I need to spread this word. And I agree. I, the number of families, I don't even know if it's the past five years or what that come in so well educated at this point because they mm -hmm. did research. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, and they went online um, and got directed to something to figure out. It's like, Right. You don't even have to tell me about it. I've done all my research. I've talked to right. family, friends who've done this or whatnot. So the awareness definitely is done. You know, it's always a double-edged sword with that, but right. I think it's been more positive. Right. Um, and as far as results and and um, outcomes, right? Do you? What do you feel? Like, which babies do you feel will do the best? That's, that's a, a, not an easy answer. I know. I know. And, and a lot of that depends on, on like what you are finding from a right. you know, functional standpoint, mm -hmm. you know, because, and I still have ones that definitely slip through the cracks and mm -hmm. you, you know, have no other, you know, team, you have to kind of put a team together quickly for mm -hmm. people. Um, but yeah, I don't have a, a simple answer for that. All right. That's fair. A lot of I think what I'm trying to get at is if, do you feel that the families who are working with either a lactation consultant or a body worker or an SLP, depending on the age of the baby, are going to do better? Yes. That, yeah, when I talk about that sort of thing, the babies that have a team and have, you know, been working, you know, with the, the functional aspect of things, you know, from the oral and the body component, I find do much better than right. you, this is not a quick fix and you never sell it as a, no. I'm going to do this and your baby's going to no. be fine. No, I think earlier on, we were all thinking that way. This is the yeah. silver bullet. You're going to do this and everything's fine. And a lot yeah. of, and there's still parents that get, you know, hung up on that. And yeah. this is, and I say, no, this is a piece of the puzzle and this is going to be a process. Mm -hmm. There's there are a lot of things at play here. We release this little piece of tissue that's been restricting function, but you still have to work on on re-educating those, you know, what we call neuromuscular re-education. You you talk to the the feeding and the speech therapists like Robin Walsh and, and Lori Overland mm -hmm. who really talk about neuromuscular re-education. Right. So there's a lot of complex components here that they have right. to kind of relearn. Um, so it's a, it's a process mm -hmm. and that process yeah. varies. I have, you know, have some babies that do beautifully right out of the gate and some that can take, you know, a few weeks to, you know, a couple months to get there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The I mean, it's, and there's no predicting that. And, mm -hmm. and um, that's what makes my, I mean, your job too, but my job very challenging because, you know, a lot of new parents are very overwhelmed. They have, you know, the postpartum period, is fraught with anxiety for a lot of people. There's not a lot of support, especially in the last couple of years when different support groups and in-person things have basically been shut down. Hopefully right. they're opening up again. And there's not as much um, preparedness for that postpartum period. And it can be very, 
very anxiety producing breastfeeding itself can be a challenge. You know, I lo- I'd love to say it's easy, you know, it's natural. It just comes easy, but it, it's, it's natural, but it doesn't always come easy. And um, that commitment without the support, you know, and we got parents going back to work right away or yeah, juggling other kids, homeschooling and, and all this stuff that's going yeah. on. So it, it can be even the families that I work with that have all the resources that I can give them often have a hard time following through with ideal care, right? you know, and we have to make room for that, you know? Um, But it seems to me sometimes that there's kids that are going to do well with little help. And then there's other kids that you can do everything to, and it's going to be, it's going to be a journey. Right. No. And we can't predict that ahead of time. No, it's not not easy. There could be things that we just don't see or know about with their, you know, development and whatnot. Right. You know, and and I think, you know, the biggest thing like you you talked about is the support. I mean, and that might be another question to ask providers, what type of aftercare support long term? Yes. I have patients, every patient gets my cell phone and I have patients texting me from years ago. You know, <laughs> that's great. Like, and you answer. I know yeah, you do. Answer. Like, I can't believe yeah. you answered me, you know, right. it's like, well, that's what we're here for. It's not right. just about doing a procedure and you're on your way. Right. Right. So we want to see the outcomes long-term. Right. Either. And that, that's one of the questions that I, I have on my list of questions to ask a provider. How will I get in touch with you if I have a problem? Right. So, and when do you want to call me? You know, like what emergencies should I notify you for, you know, and bleeding fever, things like that. So let's just talk a little bit about that. We didn't talk about that. The complication rate is so low. When I talk about risk versus benefit, when I do a consult with a family and I, we show them the anatomy, they come in, you know, so the way it would work in my office, let's say you're, you're making a phone call to my office. You get, well, I'll walk you through the, you know, the whole mm-hmm. workflow or how it works is that you'd make the call. My, my staff is very experienced in kind of talking to you and making sure, you know, the best that they can to make sure you have a team in place. Mm-hmm. It doesn't always happen, but that we try our best. And, you know, we'll talk to you about coming in, what to expect. And, you know, you come in for the consultation. We typically build in time to do a procedure if it's indicated um, at the time, because most people are traveling many mm-hmm. sometimes hours to, you know, or sometimes flying in from other parts. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about, you know, a consult, the family comes in and I review everything. Why are they there? You know, who sent them? What's been going on with the baby and their whole history, birth history is important. We need mm-hmm. to know the birth trauma, you know, who, who else is in part of the team mm-hmm. um, and then doing an assessment. So I make a diagnosis on anatomy. I'm not really talking about function. I want to know what's going on from a functional standpoint because it helped me put these pieces of the puzzle together for the family and kind of explain it to them. Mm-hmm. But then I, I sh- will identify, you know, there's essentially like seven points or seven spots in the mouth that I check, you know, that are kind of classic to have ties or frenulums mm-hmm. or feathers. And it's typically the upper lip, the lower lip, the cheeks, what we call buckle, B-U-C-C-A-L, on the sides, and that could be upper or lower, and then under the tongue. So that's mm-hmm. essentially seven spots, and you can have variations of that. You can mm-hmm. have multiple little webs throughout the mouth and, you know, multiple ties or maybe one. Um, but we usually see more than one. And so when I do my assessment, I'll show them what I see or don't see. 
And then I explain to them, it's like, you know, I see a lip tie, you know, I'll ask them, is the lip flanging out and forming a nice seal over the nipple when they're feeding? I see a tongue tie, I'll ask them, you know, certain questions, you know, mm. a lot of it is, you know, you, you go on the check down checklists and whatnot, but I won't get into mm. the details, but I'll show them the anatomy. Um, and, you know, we take pictures now before of doing anything. So we have it in the records for them. And um, then we circle back to risk versus benefit, mm-hmm. the true risk of releasing these things versus leaving them, especially if there's a functional problem at that point, mm-hmm. if they are struggling with function, you know, I, I don't term these and a lot of us in our field, you know, parents are always wanting to ask, you know, is it mild? Is it moderate? Is right, it, right. Classify these. Right. We don't really classify them that way. I, I say they're present or not. You know, mm-hmm. I jokingly tell people and I'll say that at lectures. I said, if it's a mild tie, it's like being mildly pregnant to somebody. Right. right. If there's a functional there's either problem. A rest- there's either a restriction or there's not. Right. right? Yeah. And if it's impacting function, it, you know, that's severe to the child or mm-hmm. the baby or it can be severe. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter what it looks like, you know, and then the actual procedure carries very low risk. Mm-hmm. It's done correctly, you know, with an experience. And with the right tool and with someone who knows how to operate that right tool. <laughs> exactly. So when you look in the literature, we're always talking about, you know, bleeding, infection, injury to adjacent anatomy, like nerves, blood vessels, salivary glands. In my own practice, I've not had that. I've had a couple of incidents of, of you know, some bleeding that were easily taken care of, but I've not had any other issues. Um, so when I talk about issues with the procedure, The biggest thing we really battle, you know, in the real world is, quote unquote, the reattachment where things kind of get back together. Right. Um, And that's when we start to talk about what we call active wound care or stretching and aftercare. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Getting to heal open. Right. Right. And slowing the healing down because these babies want to heal super fast and Mm -hmm. things can go right back to where they were. Right. Plus, if they're not using their tongue, if they're not opening their mouth really wide and lifting up the tongue and the tongue is staying down, then it's going to have the impetus to just come back together under there. Yep. So getting right. the tongue moving is, is just as important as the stretches, I think. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So the other thing is um, people always ask me if it's painful for the baby. And right. I know that you respect the fact that a baby can't tell us that there's pain but we assume that there is pain. Correct. Yeah. I, I always assume, you know, and I do old, a lot of older kids and I do mm-hmm. adults as well. And mm-hmm. if you try to, to laser, you know, and I don't really care what laser you're using. It, it carries some degree of pain. It hurts. Mm-hmm. I tried it on myself. So mm-hmm. we do our best to alleviate pain with, with topical numbing gels mm-hmm. and there are, you know, colleagues of mine who don't numb, but I numb, um, you know, I, I, when I tell parents, I say the babies can't really tell us if it's painful, but they cry and their crying is, you know, I, I'll right. treat that pain. Right. So I try to minimize that as best as I right. can. Knowing that the procedure, you know, in my own hands just takes a matter of seconds, you know, right. to do, and it's very short lived. We still treat that. as Right. Pain. And that's one of the reasons I respect you. I mean, I know, um, this is a little bit of a controversial issue and it has nothing to do with tongue tie, but there are, there was a few years ago, a controversy about not medicating for circumcision in the right. hospital. Yep. We never gave anything for pain for circumcision. Right. And the thought of that now is 
horrendous. And we had doctors fighting the, the new protocols of using a numbing gel, which is just crazy. Like we just assume babies don't feel anything because they can't tell us. Yeah, and right. just thinking about that trauma, so that that's where I got the um, the idea that I would never want even that quick laser procedure to be done with, without anything for the baby. And then afterwards, in my experience, the babies, because we hear a lot also the other complication that's not from actually the surgery, but something that can happen is oral aversion, meaning the baby right. now doesn't want to take anything into their mouth. Right. And I would say when the procedure is, is done right and the baby is medicated both during and after, I almost never see oral aversion. Like maybe very I'll see, like I'll hear from a mother who's having trouble that, that very night that the baby's a little unorganized with getting onto the breast or it hurts them to, and they're crying a lot that one night. But if we treat them with certain protocols, the I haven't seen oral aversion, except in kids that were not done properly and maybe redone by the same person that made the mistake in the beginning and, and, you know, put through the same protocols. I like to say, if a baby needs to be redone again, don't do the same thing and expect a different result. Yep. Yep. <laughs> right? Always change it up. Think about, well, why did this happen? And what we can we do, whether right. it be more body work or a different type of body work, maybe they need CST instead of chiropractic or change it up. Think about pain relief. So do you hear a lot about oral aversion? Because I'm not no, hearing. That. No, you know, on occasion we'll get cases like that, but then there's usually something else going on as well. Right, right. So you know, a lot of times it's not just from the procedure itself, but there's other mm -hmm. factors involved right. that the baby's having disorganized suckings or, you know, maybe a parent's technique wasn't great at home or something mm -hmm. or something else was going yeah. on. But not and babies pick up their anxiety a lot. A hundred percent, you know. Yeah, which is why I have a whole thing about what to do that night, you know, like yeah. low lights and taking a bath with the baby if possible and just yeah. keeping everything calm, rescue remedy for everyone in the house, you know, yeah. keeping everything toned down and, and calm and quiet and lights low. Um, that's not possible for everybody because some people are going home to a house of three or four other kids, right? Exactly. right? But preparation is key and support is key as always. So Dr. Siegel, is there anything that I didn't ask you about? Is there anything you'd like parents to know or professionals to know that I haven't asked you yet? Hmm. <laughs> I don't remember what I even spoke about. <laughs> <laughs> So but if no, you were, I, you know, if you, you were talking, going, I, think hit, I think we hit the salient features of okay. this whole thing. I think the biggest thing to do is do your due diligence, you know, when seeking out a team or provider or whatnot is just to really make sure you're doing your due diligence, whether it's, you know, uh, online research or, you know, personal referrals or whatnot, just to really, you know, make sure because we see so many of that those issues not happening and right. I want to see the aftermath and then right. it's much more difficult to kind of salvage some of these situations. Exactly. And you don't want to put babies through unnecessary no. procedures, right? No. It's worse oh. first off do no harm. You know? Exactly. Exactly. Well as always it was a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much for being on the Tongue Tie Experts podcast. I'm sure we'll be on 
<laughs> again together at, an, at another point, because there's so much we could talk about. We could talk for hours on different topics a little deeper, right? Um, but thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure. Thank you, Lisa. It's always All right. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Tongue Tie Experts podcast. Please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. If you enjoy what you hear, we'd love it if you'd rate, review, and share with your friends. Check out the show notes for useful links about the topics we discussed on this week's podcast. Also, you'll find the ways to follow us on social media. Bye-bye.